Welcome to the OKC First podcast. Together, we're learning to do three things. Friendship with God. Friendship with one another. And open friendship for the sake of the world. For more information about OKC First, please visit OKCFirst.com. Today's scripture comes from Jeremiah chapter 32, verses 1 through 3. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the tenth year of King Zedekiah of Judah, which was the eighteenth year of Nebuchadnezzar. At that time, the army of the king of Babylon was besieging Jerusalem, and the prophet Jeremiah was confined in the court of the guard that was in the palace of the king of Judah, where King Zedekiah of Judah had confined him. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, everybody. I think I, I, I think I say it every time. I hope I do. Every time I am, I am not here for worship, I, I miss being here, and I'm always grateful all over again uh, to be here and be a part of this community of worship. Let me say off the top, I recognize that a bunch of these Jeremiah texts have been tough, and they were chosen intentionally because they are tough, and this one is tough, and then next week is tough, and then you'll notice a turn um, in the tone and everything. But I don't, I don't, again, I don't, want to, I don't want to protect us from the hard words of Scripture when sometimes it's the hard words of Scripture that we need to hear. But why don't we start, rather than with the words of Scripture, you mind if we start with the words of, uh, hope I got this ready to go, with the words of Winston Churchill. He said, we shape our buildings, thereafter they shape us. Now, he was talking about uh, parliament, the parliamentary building that was going to be rebuilt after it had been uh, destroyed during World War II. And uh, there were people who were suggesting changes, but he said, no, actually, we need to build it just so because once it is built, once the architecture is, we put some kind of skin on the architecture, we will notice that as we have built a building, so also that building then will start to build us and shape us in particular ways. And he wanted to preserve the uh, conversational nature of their democracy. I resonated with that because these spaces around here have shaped me for a long time. Like this space. Um, these stained glass windows in here uh, shaped me. I, they have for years. And sometimes I'm aware of it, sometimes I'm not. But these four stained glass windows, each was donated by a family with a story. And it's not just the stories behind, but obviously it's the images themselves. This space has shaped me dramatically, as has that space all the way back there in the back. The Cole Community Center is an important space. The space right back here in this corner, where I have a great time uh, teaching that Sunday school class, that space has shaped me very much. It is our belief that the spaces that we are preparing for our kids back there will positively shape our kids. And so when we talk about uh, the, the Next Step program, and, and nobody else knew I was going to do this, is actually a part of the, the sermon. It may not feel like it, but I promise it is. When we talk about the Next Step program that JR has helped us to, to quarterback back there, it is the atrium and it's kids' spaces ultimately. But, it, but all of that we do in the full recognition that as we shape those spaces, then those spaces will then shape us. And so we, we are asking you to help us financially 
Now, I don't know how you understand the money that you would make available to us to make then spaces that then would shape us and, and our kids. I don't know if you understand that as a gift. That's great. Hope you do. Perhaps you understand it as an investment. Well, that's interesting. But maybe. But if, but if you understand it in any way as an investment, in what or in whom are you investing? In kids? Yeah, that's a good one. The kids are always worthy of our investment and all God's people said. Okay. Are we investing in the, uh, the, 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 the pastor and the pastoral staff? I'm, I'm okay with that too. I think we've got lots of good things uh, in the works and we are headed in a, in a very good direction. You also, you may not know it, but you're also investing as we finish up those spaces back there. Not only are we investing in our own children, but we're investing also in um, literacy in our neighborhood. So we're investing in all kinds of kids, some that are in the building and some that are outside of the building. Are you in any way investing in God? Are you in any way in investing in the nature and character of God? So that is how this is a part of the sermon. At the end of the day, this text will ask us, is God and the character of God worthy of your investment? Is God and the character of God worthy of your investment? I mean, investments and the fate of our portfolios, that's all been in the news this week. If you've been paying any attention at all, the Fed changes the rate and everybody wrings their hands and what are we gonna do? It is an interesting time to ask people of faith, where have you placed your ultimate hope? Like how, how do you make that determination that this and not this is worthy of my investment. And certainly, perhaps you have been one of these people. You can always look around and find clear examples of people who have invested poorly. (laughs) In fact, in the gospel text today, we have, uh, in Luke chapter 16, we have a terrible parable. And and again, this is another difficult passage, and uh, it seems even, it seems mean of the pastor to even bring it in. Uh, into another passage that's also hard, but here is how this parable goes. There was a rich man who dressed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And let's understand this guy as someone who invested well. Like he listened to his advisors, he was able to buy stuff at the low point, and then he reaped all the benefits when it, when it cashed out very well, and so he feasted sumptuously every day. Nice work. And at his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who longed to satisfy his hunger with what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs would come and lick his sores. Yuck. The poor man died and was carried away by the angels to be with Abraham. And the rich man also died and was buried. Now in eternity, the rich man said, whew, now I recognize that I have invested poorly. I've invested poorly and I am, and I am suffering, right? This is part of what makes this parable such a hard parable. The rich man says, I'm in, I'm in agony, everything hurts. God, would you please go tell Lazarus to, to bring me a little bit of relief? If he would just, you know, just dip the tip of his finger in water and then come and cool my tongue, I, I'm, I'm just in, in agony. And Abraham said, wait a minute, sir. During your lifetime, you invested, but ultimately you invested poorly. 
And now you are, in one way or another, uh, reaping the whirlwind for having invested poorly. Besides, besides, here's where it starts to get really hard for us. There's too big of a gap. I mean, Lazarus is here resting and comfortable. And you are where you are, not resting and not comfortable. There's too big of a gap. We, we can't get all the way there and you can't get all the way here. And now his heart broken, the rich man said, well, at least, at least send somebody, send Lazarus even to go and tell my family members because I don't want them to suffer like this. Go, go tell them to invest more wisely. To which Abraham responded, wait a minute, those folks have the biblical narrative, they have Moses, and they have people like Jeremiah who are saying, hey, invest well, invest well so that there aren't very many Lazaruses out there. Invest well so we don't push another Lazarus out there in the street. They have Moses, they have books like Jeremiah, they're gonna be fine. And then the rich man said, yeah, but yeah, but if you, if, I mean, think of the shock value. If you could send somebody from the dead, that would really, I mean, have you ever read the Christmas Carol? It works, right? And God said, listen, some people, some people are so baked into their habits and practices. Some people insist on investing poorly so regularly that they haven't listened to Moses. They won't listen to Jeremiah. They're really not going to listen to someone who rises from the dead. Let's think about this. How would you describe, how would you describe the rich man's investments now? I mean, how would you describe the strategy of investment now? I mean, that Lazarus, I mean, I know it's a parable, okay? I haven't forgotten that it's a parable. But that Lazarus is there at the gate to the property, gives Jeremiah something to gripe about. Because this is what Jeremiah said all the time. Hey, people of Judah, you are in harm's way because you continue to invest poorly, unwisely, and the evidence of your poor investment is the presence of Lazarus, the presence of people like Lazarus who are all around the circumference of the temple, the circumference of the, the city, the circumference of the city walls. There are so many people in such desperate need while the people of God sit inside of the walls. This is evidence that you have invested poorly, and I'm telling you, says Jeremiah, time and again, time and again, says Jeremiah, because you have invested poorly, God is frustrated with you. God is angry. This is the constant and recurring accusation God makes the, against the people of God in Judah through the voice of the prophet Jeremiah. You have forgotten God. You've forgotten what it means to be the people of God. And in your forgetting, you have created more and more Lazaruses. And now, says God, I'm going to end it. You see what I mean? These are difficult passages. Now, I mean, we can take a vote and we can take them all out because it's more fun to preach the fun and pretty stuff. <laughs> but I don't think we should. I will say again, I do have some worry about the church in North America. Let's, but let's make it more personal. I, I have some worry about the church in Oklahoma. 
I, I do want to say again, and I'm, I'm sorry to be the person who keeps banging this drum, it is not okay to have so many churches and so many Christians, so much gospel, and yet score so poorly, so poorly on societal measures of health. John, are you equating us with the illnesses suffered by the people in Judah at the time of the ministry of the prophet Jeremiah? Yes. We said this about the book of Revelation. I tried to suck some of that weird energy out of it and that weird fear and terror out of it by saying, listen, this is not about what's going to happen one time out in the future, but maybe more terrifyingly, this is about what happens all the time. <laughs> the people of God worship poorly. That's what Revelation is about, at least a sub-theme. And as a result, there is disaster. Also, the stuff that happens in, in Genesis, the stuff that happens through, let's say, books like Jeremiah, they don't just tell a story of what happened a long time ago. It's recorded, right? It is canonized for our help and benefit so that we won't be the rich man who dies and suffers forever. Recorded for our benefit so that we can say, oh, heavens, there very well could be something about us that is like those people. There is even a point in the book in Jeremiah, and Jeremiah says, people, every time I say something to you about this, here's what you do. You kind of put your fingers in your ears and you go, blah, 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 don't want to hear this. Only what they're saying when they put their fingers in their ears is what they say. They say, we're going to be in the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Surely, that's what matters, not the presence of Lazarus out there. John, are you suggesting are you suggesting that God might do it again? Well, let me say this to you. Most of the time in great, great, great ways, but sometimes in potentially frightening ways, God is a God who does things again and again. Are you suggesting, John, that if the people of God in Oklahoma continue to invest foolishly and unwisely in ways that result in there being one more Lazarus out there at the city gates that isn't cared for. Are you suggesting that God would be mad at us? I mean, heavens, we are Christians. Yes. Yeah. John, are you predicting are you going to give us the date at which God will wipe out Judah again? No, <laughs> I'm not. What I'm saying is God is God is God. And sometimes, sadly, people are people are people. I do think, I do think, I do believe that books like Jeremiah are intended to help us kind of like an alarm clock. Man, it's time to wake up. If you're visiting with us today, perhaps you're saying, what have I done? <laughs> Amen. <laughs> so, how will the people of God recover 
the capacity to be the people of God so that we aren't the next person or the next group of people that do faith in ways that result in there being another Lazarus, another Lazarus, another Lazarus. What do we do now, John? Or what is there to say about this God? Well, there's a lot. Let's get into this. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the 10th year of King Zedekiah of Judah, which was the 18th year of Nebuchadnezzar. At that time, the army of the king of Babylon was besieging, think giant blockade around, now it's gonna be around the walls of Jerusalem, giant blockade. They are slowly but surely strangling Jerusalem. They are slowly but surely trying to bring Jerusalem and the king, Zedekiah, to his knees. They're trying to win the war, but they don't mind doing it slowly and, and painfully. Now, Jeremiah has been saying these things out loud that I've been talking about today. Jeremiah's been saying, there's a reason this is happening. There's a reason. I mean, king, you have been hearing all of this from me all the way along, and the king said, let's go ahead and put you in jail for saying all these terrible things about us. I mean, heavens, Jeremiah, we are the people of God. But this is what Zedekiah said to Jeremiah. Why do you prophesy and say, thus says the Lord, I'm going to give this city into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall take it. Shouldn't you be bringing me good news, Jeremiah? King Zedekiah of Judah shall not escape out of the hands of the Chaldeans, but shall surely be given into the hands of the king of Babylon, and shall speak with him face to face and see him eye to eye, and he shall take Zedekiah to Babylon. He was right, by the way. And there he shall remain until I attend to him, says the Lord. Though you fight against the Chaldeans, you shall not succeed. <laughs> this is not what the king wants to hear from the prophet who is speaking for God. And so the king puts Jeremiah in prison. And literally, by this time in the story, they can literally hear the gears of the war machine, the Babylonian war machine, they can literally hear them just outside the city gates. Can you imagine how terrifying that must have been to hear them building the ramps that then would allow them to top the walls. They are looking at it. They are seeing it. They are hearing it. Can you imagine the tension in the room? Can you imagine the sense that things are at an end and perhaps with a capital E, things are at an end? And then the weirdest thing happens. Jeremiah said, apparently not listening to the king, <laughs> Jeremiah said, the word of the Lord came to me. Hanamel, son of your uncle Shalom, this is what God said to Jeremiah, is going to come to you and say, buy my field that is at our hometown in Anatote for the right of redemption by purchase is yours. And then it happens exactly as God has said. Somehow Hanamel is able to show up. Now perhaps he is struggling because of the blockade and perhaps the farm is not in working order, but Hanamel is about to starve to death and they're about to lose the land. They're about to lose their family track of land. 
And so somehow he makes it through the enemy armies. He gets all the way to the temple. He gets all the way to find Jeremiah in his cell. And he says to him, things are really bad. I am cash strapped. I really need something. And I'm about to lose the land, the family land. You know what patch of land I'm talking about. Jeremiah says, yes, I, I know what patch of land you're talking about. And Hanamel says, this is all going to go badly. We're going to lose this track of land if you don't buy it. If you don't make a real estate investment, we're going to lose this track of land. Now, Lots of people who would have heard this conversation were thinking something like you're thinking now. Like, wait, the Babylonians are about to take everything. <laughs> and what they don't want to take home with them, they're going to burn. You're really going to do a real estate deal now? That makes no sense. Like, in what universe does somebody make a real estate deal then? I mean, it doesn't make any sense. And yet, Jeremiah says, sounds right to me. And Jeremiah puts this amazing, very real, very public process into motion that will result in a real estate transaction because Jeremiah knows something about God. That God's trustworthy. And so, He says, I knew this was the word of the Lord. In verse 9, I bought the field at Anatote from my cousin Hanamel, and I weighed out the money to him, 17 shekels of silver. The land was cheap back then. I signed the deed. I sealed it. I got witnesses. I weighed the money on scales. Then I took the sealed deed of purchase containing the terms and conditions and the open copy, and I gave the deed of purchase to Baruch, kind of Jeremiah's secretary, the son of Neriah, son of Masaiah, I don't know how to say that, in the presence of my cousin Hanamel, in the presence of the witnesses who signed the deed of purchase, in the presence of all the Judeans who are sitting in the court of the guard, most of them saying, this is madness. Why aren't we trying to figure out how to escape or win the war? Why are we doing real estate deals here, Jeremiah? You're a crazy person. They did think he was crazy. What does Jeremiah know that they don't? Verse 13, in their presence, all of the doubters, I charged Baruch saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, take these deeds, both this sealed deed of purchase and this open deed, and put them in an earthenware jar in order that they may last for a long time. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel's, a God of Israel, houses and fields and vineyards shall again be bought in this land. On what basis does Jeremiah buy this field? Where is he drawing the confidence, especially given his current jailed situation? Where does he find the confidence to make such an investment? He finds it only in God and the promise of God. He finds it only in God and the promise of God. Is that good enough for you to make an investment? Or let me ask a harder question of us, me included. Where in our lives, John included, is there evidence that we are investing in, banking on God, the character of God, and the purpose of God? Let me ask you again. 
It's awfully quiet in here, gracious. Where in our lives is there evidence that you and I are banking on investing in the trustworthiness of God, the character of God, the promise of God, the call of God. I, I tell you, one place I see it all the time, and it's not just because I'm married to one, but I, I see it in, in school teachers. I, I see it in school teachers who, first day of class, sees these precious gifts of God, walk through the doors, all is good. A week later, it's like, God, what have you done to me? <laughs> Xanax enters into the equation somewhere. I don't know. Something like this. And yet, there's something about so many of the school teachers that I know that keeps them going back. Sometimes, against the evidence presented by their eyes and ears, teachers keep going back because there is something in this kid, I can't shake it, there's something in this kid worthy of my deep investment. I would suggest that there's something of God in the stubbornness of a teacher who will not give up on a kid. Maybe, maybe you're the parent that has done this. I've seen this too. Sometimes kids wander away from home in more ways than one. And sometimes there are parents who are absolutely gutted by the wandering. And sometimes some of those parents refuse to give up. And I think there is something of God in the parent that will not give up. There is something of the parent, there's something in the school teacher that actually believes it when God says something like this. Is there anything too hard for me? Is there anything too hard for me? Now, this phrase or something like it comes up all the time in scripture. That's gonna be said here just later on in this same chapter. God is explaining, God is explaining what God is doing here. And God is saying, yes, you all have earned this exile. You all have earned this cleansing. It's gonna be very difficult, very painful. But hear me, says God, you all have earned it. And that won't be the last word because God says, I will have my way and my way is good. <laughs> the last word will be a good one because God's mind about Israel, even though this is gonna be hard and they will have earned this punishment, God's mind about them was still made up, and help me with this, and the news was still. So yes, John says scary things about the gospel as it is peddled here, yeah. But that doesn't mean that I think God's changed God's mind about us. Us. No, I think God can do a big thing because God says regularly in scripture, is there anything too hard for me? All the way back in Genesis 18, God goes to a very old woman, now named Sarah, had been Sarai, but now named Sarah and says, you know, I'm gonna come back in a year and you're gonna have a, have a child. And as Mike and Vanette Bell know, and we're gonna tell the story again when we do the uh, fall fest, Sarah Snickers. Everybody know what I'm talking about there? Yeah. And God says something similar. He says, wait a minute, is there anything too wonderful for me? Ezekiel 37, there's a valley of dry and dusty bones. Only God can breathe life 
into dry and dusty bones and turn them into something more. In Luke chapter 1, an angel comes to visit a teenager and says, man, the things that God is going to do in and through you. And Mary says, ah, you have the wrong person. It can't be me for a lot of reasons, some of them physiological. And after the end of the next short speech, wherein the angel says, yeah, it's you. And it's you because it's God. And that speech ends with, for nothing will be impossible with God. I mean, the resurrection, right? It's another good one. Nothing will be impossible with God. There is this word that sometimes we, we toss around as believers, but I think it may have more teeth. I think it may have more grip on us. Maybe it should have more of a grip on us than it does. Christians invest in the nature and the character of God, the mission of God, and actually it can be called hope because sometimes hope happens against all of the evidence that our eyes and ears would give us. This is not optimism. Hope is something more than optimism. Hope, (laughs) well, optimism might be based on the signs. I can kind of see signs like, yeah, they lost last night, but there's some good things in the water, right? That, that might be optimism, coach, right? You, you can kind of seize the signs where some things are changing. Sometimes hope takes its be, does its best work. It takes effect when there are no signs like this, like when there are people who are building the, the ramps up to the top of the walls and they're about to come in. And then Jeremiah, against all logic, says, it may be time to buy some land. And why would you do that, Jeremiah? Jeremiah would say, because God is good and God makes big promises and gives good gifts. as it has to do with your investments, and investments of all kinds. Hopefully it's not just about optimism and your ability to read the signs. Hopefully it's also about hope. That when there are no signs to be read that are pointing in the right direction, there is and will always be the nature and the character of God. I was at Olivet this past week during their fall revival. Had a great time. Got to speak in College Church a few times and that big beautiful chapel a few times. And and I, I need to tell you, I was I was a guy in need of a revival myself. Sometimes uh, I lose the sword fight with cynicism. Sometimes I do. And sometimes I get a little too uh, intoxicated or intimidated by all of the signs that things are headed in the wrong direction, right? (laughs) And so in my cynicism, I go to be the revival speaker. Perfect choice then, right? It's what you need for a revival speaker. You need a big cynic as a revival speaker. And then, I don't have a great way to explain this to you. I don't have, a, I, there's no good reason for it, but, but not only, 
let me say it like this, God was faithful. And in some really small, interesting ways, and in some larger ways, that I cannot explain in any other way but to say that God was faithful even in the days when I wrestled as to whether or not I was going to be faithful, God was faithful. Songs were matched with texts and lines in the songs were lines in the sermon and we hadn't communicated at all and it happened three services in a row. And after the third time you start to go, maybe there is a God. (laughs) Then I came back this week and had coffee with a very dear friend who told me a story about a week that was going in the wrong direction. All the signs, all the evidence was heading in the wrong direction. So much so that, you know, he was starting to feel it like a weight. <laughs> like there was, there was an impossibility staring him in the face, an impossibility. Impossibility. And then a phone call came from a number he didn't recognize. Somebody who shouldn't have any real firsthand knowledge of what was going on. Phone call came nonetheless. And the impossibility got shifted into a different category, which is possible because God is who God is. Now, it feels like I say this to you every time I come back from meeting with those sweet people, those sweet Methodist people in Ireland. They always alert me to the the presence of God that is everywhere if you have ears to hear and eyes to see. But this time, I am happy to report that apparently that same God that's so readily available to us in Ireland seems that God also lives in Oklahoma. And yes, sometimes I still have to battle the cynicism, probably like a lot of you school teachers do, because the kids continue to drive you nuts. And if it wasn't just that, the structure itself, maybe at the institution, sometimes seems like it's angled in the wrong direction. Amen? No? Okay. Sometimes all we've got when we don't have the evidence that will grant us optimism, sometimes all we've got is the character of God that grants us hope. Hope. Talked with somebody today, brand new to the church. Said, welcome, welcome, welcome. She said, glad to be here. There's just so much going on in my life. I kind of had to drag it all in here today. I just needed something. What do we have for people? who come in and cannot find evidence that finally grants optimism, here's what we have. Each and every week, we have moments where if we have eyes to see it and ears to hear it, we have moments then we can offer something even better than optimism, and it's hope. Hope. That God is who God is, that God is trustworthy, that God is faithful, that God is present, that God is somehow taking even the ugly stuff that provides plenty, plenty of material that results in cynicism. That God is available and accessible even then and can take even that and turn it into the ground from which hope can sprout. Yep, even here in Oklahoma, even here in Christian Oklahoma, and I know here at OKC First. Friends, do you need some hope?
because we brought plenty today. If you're going to help us today, please come and help set the table where we, on a regular basis, are reminded of this hope that starts somewhere else and then comes to us, this eternal source of hope. Each week, we tell these stories. Each week, we get our entire bodies involved in the telling of these stories, in our reception of this grace and hope, in our response to this grace and hope. And so, God, bless these elements. And for the person in the room who is battling cynicism, for the person in the room who has uh, brought all of that despair in with her or with him or with them, for the person who sees no evidence that would grant them even the slightest bit of optimism, may they at the table today, given the broken body and shed blood, may they today leave with a sense of hope that you are who you say you are, that you are good, and while you make big promises, you keep big promises and give good gifts. In just a second, I'm gonna ask you to stand to your feet, all of you who will. By the way, this is all an invitation. None are compelled, but you all are invited to come and join at this celebration of hope. You'll be asked to stand to your feet, exit your pews to your left, and to come forward with your hands cupped to receive this gift of grace, tangible evidence of hope. As you approach the person holding the plate of bread, that person will say to you, this is the body of Christ broken for you. Take that piece of bread, dip it into the cup. As you do, that person holding the cup will say, and this is the blood of Christ shed for you. I mean, let's be honest. At the moment when the body was broken originally, at the moment when the blood was shed originally, there wasn't a lot of sign that would give you some optimism, was there? But what we had was the nature and character of God that even then gives us hope. So then, after you take and eat, I hope you'll find a place to pray. I mourn that the pandemic took altars from us. We've lost the habit of praying, at least praying at the altar. If you need some hope, then maybe you can find some here at the altar. You can pray at your seat. Certainly you can. I think God can, I think God can hear you, when you, play at your, at your, when you pray at your pew. But here, someone will join you in that prayer for hope, and you will know it. Perhaps somebody also needing to pray the prayer for hope. If you need a prayer for healing, there's a healing bench over there and a healing altar over there, and someone will meet you there and pray that prayer over there, anoint you with oil, and say, hey, God is nearby and is clinging to you as this oil will cling to your forehead. There's nothing magic about it, but there is something meaningful and symbolic about it. God is here and near. You might want to make a special trip down here to dip your fingers into this water. Water is meant to help you remember, to remind you of the moment of your baptism when you were initiated into this group of people who are wholly reliant, or at least should be, on God's nature, character, promise, and calling. And if you need that reminder, that water works. Works for me each week. Now, if you prefer the pre-packaged variety, it works just as well. And after I do the liturgy, we'll be ready for you to just to take and eat and drink. If you prefer not to come down, but if you want the pre-packaged, the people who are dismissing you by row have those pre-packaged elements for you and it works just as well. Again, I wanna say, all are invited 
but none are compelled. Well, John, am I even eligible? Here's the thing. If you recognize your need for grace as your pastor has spoken to today, I need the grace. If you acknowledge your need for grace, that's all you need to qualify for participation at this table. It was on the night that he was betrayed that our Savior took bread, he blessed it, and he broke it. He gave it to his disciples saying, this is my body broken for you. And every time you eat of it, remember me. The same way you would take the cup, hold it up before them and say, and this is my blood, the blood of a new covenant now shed for you. And every time you drink of it, remember me. And now all across the sanctuary as you are dismissed, please come forward with your hands cupped to receive these gifts of grace. Gifts of grace for the people of God. And now, come. going to lead us in a few prayers of confession before turning it over to Pastor Ken for prayers of intercession. 
in the Lord's Prayer. So Heavenly Father, hear us as we pray. We confess that like the people of Judah, we don't want to hear the challenging news, the hard news, the bad news. Sometimes, God, we can be intimidated by all of the bad news, all of the evidence, and sometimes the casualty is the hope that you hope that we carry with us. And so hear us now, God, as we confess that sometimes our attention is demanded by the bad news and the ugly evidence and open us to the possibility of a fresh source of hope. So pray that prayer now if you would. with those who are grieving. There have been a number of losses in our church family and our community these past few days and weeks. Some of those were somewhat expected, not a great surprise, but others were shocking and to us make no sense at all. But we pray that to those who are grieving, they would they would know your presence and know your strength and have the the faith to believe that they'll make it through this time of loss and then father we also recognize that there are other losses besides those through death and we pray that same prayer we pray this morning for those who are needing a miracle of physical healing, battling illness. Maybe the battle has been long and hard. We pray boldly for your miraculous touch in their lives. And even more for your presence that strengthens them inside. Father, you are bringing to our minds this morning some who are just struggling with life. May not even be able to pinpoint the reason or reasons why, but fear, anxiety, and even despair are constantly pounding on the doors. Father, we pray just now that you would pour out the grace that would able, enable them to hear you call their name, to hear them, to hear you personally call their name, and know your grace and your love and your hope, the hope that only comes from you. 
No, Father, today, this moment, we recognize how much we need you. And so we pray for one another. And church, as we continue in this moment of prayer, let's pray the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples that you see on the screens before you. Let's pray together. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.